I don't know, man. I just I sort of feel the feel the stirring. We could I could go home a happy guy right now, but I'm not going to because I'm going to preach to you for the next half hour. Or so just kind of buckle in here. We've got good things that we've got in store. Let me do a quick rewind. I want to get you kind of caught up to speed, especially if you are new with us. We have been going through a series that we are calling Rebuild. And in this time of rebuilding, I mean, everything's kind of been disrupted, right? So we're in a season of rebuilding. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that here in a few moments. But this series has really been dedicated to experiencing and inviting the restoration of God. So we talked in the beginning of the series about life doesn't always move up and to the right. We've been living uh, examples of that and just the fact that our lives have been very much disrupted. We've talked about rebuilding in the tension of both humility and confidence, right? I mean, we're humbled because we realize that we in and of ourselves don't have a whole lot to offer, and that keeps us humble. Jesus is the head of the church, and that keeps us humble, but Jesus is the head of the church, and so that gives us confidence. So we rebuild in this tension of humility and confidence. We rebuild through distractions and through difficulties. If everything was linear, we just simply go from point A to point B to point C, it would be easy, but it's not. There's distractions, there's obstacles that come, there are setbacks, there are spiritual battles, and so we need to be aware of that. We rebuild trust. And that's a big one. A season where trust is sort of hard to come by on a lot of levels. We start by saying, trust in the Lord with all our heart. Lean not on my own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge him and he directs our paths. We rebuild relationships. You know, if there's never, if there's ever been a time that we have experienced strain in relationships, and we talked about that last week, Pastor Nate was here and really led us through in a, in a special way. You know, I sensed that there was some healing work that the Lord was doing even as we were going through that season, and I believe healing work that he still has yet to do. Well, at this point, we're about halfway through the series. So for those of you who are thinking like, Man, I love this. This has been awesome. Well, we still got a lot left to do, and so you'll be happy. For those of you who are like, I kind of wish we did this like in two weeks and moved on to something else. Sorry, we got a whole bunch more. Um, we're about halfway through. Last week when Nate was speaking, he was talking about Romans 12, uh, rejoicing in hope, being patient in affliction, and then finally being constant in prayer. And that is a great segue into our message today. Today I want to talk with you about rebuilding your upper room, referring, referring specifically to your prayer life. You know, what, how's your prayer life in these days? How's your prayer life in this new season that you're moving into? Uh, campus ministers that are getting ready, we just prayed for you. How's your upper room doing? How's the upper room of your ministry? How's the upper room of your church? So today we're going to look at this notion of rebuild the upper room. The upper room is a place where intimacy with Jesus gets cultivated. This is why it's so important, so vital. I'm going to share why we prioritize this here in just a few moments. But the upper room is the place that we, we celebrate intimacy with Jesus. This is where this gets cultivated. This is where Jesus was when he, when he said, I want to have the Passover. Right before he's going to the cross, he says, I want to do this with my disciples because I have things I want to impart to them about service and ministry and the Holy Spirit. That was happening in the upper room. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. This happens in the upper room. Jesus sends his disciples back to the upper room 
to wait in prayer for the power of the Holy Spirit before they put their feet and hands and voices into ministry. The Holy Spirit comes to a praying group of the disciples in the upper room. And the ministry of the early church, and to this very day, comes from that overflow power that comes in the upper room. So we need to take seriously the call to rebuild the upper room of prayer in our personal lives, in our families, in our community, in our church. We become very dry, we become very fruitless without intentional cultivation and prioritization of the upper room. So this applies to your personal walk with the Lord, this applies to your family and marriage, this applies to your church life. Without the upper room, this has to be the priority that we go after. We become dry and fruitless. So I want to look at a few scriptures with you this morning. First of all, if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 56. We're going to look at an Old Testament passage, a gospel passage, and another New Testament passage this morning in this notion of the upper room, this prayer calling that oftentimes gets neglected. You know, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, most of my, I was going to say most of my adult life, but most of my life, what I have heard in church interaction is kind of this ongoing lament that we don't pray as we ought to. We don't pray like we used to. We don't pray enough. And a lot of times there are people who are saying, look, I, I agree with that. I just don't really know where to start. I don't even know really how to do that. And so may God add us, add some blessing as we go through this and give us a little motivation, give us a little hunger. That's part of my prayer for you is that the Lord would be cultivating hunger in us. So Isaiah 56 is an interesting chapter. Isaiah's talking at this portion about uh, the foreigner who, who joins themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love his name, to be his servant, those who are in covenant with him. He says that specifically. The people that are in covenant with the Lord. Now the reason that this is important for us to understand is if we're going to talk about prayer, a lot of us deal with sort of the God frustration or prayer frustration because we don't know what it means to walk in covenant with him. In fact, there's a lot of people, especially out in the world, they talk about prayer and they say, well, it didn't really work. You know, I mean, I prayed for a raise in my job, or I prayed that, prayed that God would straighten my kids out, or I prayed that you know, something would go differently. I prayed about it a couple times and it didn't happen, so prayer doesn't really work. But that is missing out on the reality of, of covenant relationship that we are called to. So this message really is for those who are in covenant with Christ. You bowed your knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Many of us in this room would say, I've done that. You know, I'm in a, relation, a restored relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you've never experienced that, that's actually priority one because that's what brings us into the place that we can actually pray effectively. We have that right relationship. So we're in covenant with him. Anyway, that's a, that's a little sermon in a sermon. Just be aware of that. Isaiah 56, verse 7, of these people, these foreign people who would join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, love his name, to be his servant, who would be in covenant with him, Isaiah writes this, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. 
It gives us a little bit of context when you hear those words, house of prayer, that Jesus would then quote in the Gospels. We're going to go there now. You know where that came from. It's a reference to Isaiah chapter 56. In Matthew 21, flip, flip, flip ahead to New Testament. In Matthew chapter 21, this is when Jesus has just come in, the triumphal entry. He's coming to Jerusalem. Uh, if, if the people don't praise me, the rocks are going to cry out. You remember all of this is going on. He comes in, and the first thing he does is he goes to the temple, and he gets ticked because he sees that people are buying and selling and swindling. And then in a kind of rare glimpse, we see Jesus in anger flipping over tables, clearing out the temple, chasing people out with whips, says one of the Gospels. And this is why he was so upset. Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables, the money changers, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And then he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And you've made it a den of robbers. It was this misidentification with what this gathering of God's people was really supposed to be about that caused Jesus to become irate and upset. Now we fast forward a little farther to Acts chapter 1. Let me give you one bit more bit of sort of scriptural foundation that we're going to build on here today. Acts chapter 1, now we've, we're, we're post-resurrection. Jesus has come. He's gathered people together and it says in verse 4, while, we were, while they were staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Flip ahead to verse, verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We quote that passage a lot. I think we should quote that passage a lot. And then if we skip ahead, in verse 12, we see they return to Jerusalem. They're doing what Jesus said, Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And they entered. It says all of the disciples were there. And then verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we have to ask this question, understanding Isaiah is talking about this house of prayer, and then Jesus is quoting, my house will be called a house of prayer, and then when he leaves, he leaves them in a place of prayer. So we begin to see this priority, and the question that emerges is, what did Jesus leave behind? I mean, this, this is still really fascinating, especially for, I'm not a huge micromanager, but I like to kind of have a plan. You know what I mean? So if I'm leaving things behind, I want to be able to tell people, don't forget this, and this is going to be important, and you're going to need to expect this, and all of those kind of things. And what Jesus essentially does is he says, I'm not going to give you brick and mortar. I'm not going to give you a graduate program. I'm not going to give you a choir or a praise band. I'm not going to give you a preaching outline. All of these things are good kingdom tools, but he says, I'm not going to give you this. Jesus leaves the mission of the church in a prayer meeting. That's what he did. You can love it, you can hate it, you can look at it, whatever. That's what he did. He leaves the mission, the global mission to impact this world, he leaves in a prayer meeting. So three things I want to look at with this. 
I want to talk just for a few moments with you today about prioritizing the upper room. I'm going to try to do that sort of quickly so that we can get to understanding the upper room because I think for a lot of us, and I think this is probably true for many people listening to this message, the reason we don't prioritize prayer, the reason you would leave this message and say, I, I can't really do it, I, haven't really, I don't even really know where to start, the reason we don't prioritize is we, we don't understand it. We need to grow in our very understanding of something so very basic that a child can do it, but here we are as adults, many of us not really understanding what we're called to in the upper room. Uh, so I will exhaust the topic of prayer today. Um, I won't, but I will, by God's grace, give you a little better understanding. And then I want to give you just some practical things on, on how you can take a step this week, today, and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work by God's grace in rebuilding this area. So prioritizing the upper room. Um, if you had to start something over, there's kind of an embedded blessing in that, right? When you start something over, you have the opportunity to ask the clear questions of, what would I keep doing? What would I stop doing? What would I do but do differently? What would I prioritize, right? This is true in any area of your life. For example, if I was going to rebuild my house, I would say, okay, I, I no longer have the house that I live in. I, I have the lovely little house in, in Park Forest. Love the area. It's been nice. We've been there for 15 years. This is a real fixer-upper when we first got it, but we've fixed a lot of people, a lot of things up uh, over, the, over the years. Um, if I had to start over on that lovely little house, I would absolutely keep the location. It's a great location. We live in a cul-de-sac off of a cul-de-sac. Can anybody else lay claim to that? We live in, in, listen, we live in a cul-de-sac off of a cul-de-sac. I mean, it's like the most like, quiet little area. We're five minutes from everything, but we've got this nice little insulated, all the neighbors know each other. When somebody drives by in a blue truck, we're like, well, who's, who's blue truck? I mean, everybody knows everybody's car. A cul-de-sac off a cul-de-sac. So I would definitely keep the location. I would keep the neighbors. We love our neighbors. We've got great neighbors. If any of our neighbors are listening to this message, just know we would keep you. We love you. If I had to do it all over again, we would stick it out with you. We've got great neighbors. Uh, I love the storage shed in our backyard. That just came with the house. We did this nice little storage shed. I was like, man, this thing's awesome. It was the nicest thing, I think, in the house when we bought the house, the storage shed in the backyard. Uh, I love the big tree in the front of our house. We've got a giant tree. Some of you have been by our house. We've got a giant tree in our front yard, and it's beautiful. We love it. I'd definitely keep that. There's some things I'd replace. I wouldn't keep the crumbling asphalt driveway. I would not keep the, the rusted railing on the front porch. Uh, I wouldn't keep the garage door that is one door, but it doesn't all want to close at the same time. It's finicky and kind of annoying. So I wouldn't keep those things. Uh, yeah, I would make some other changes. I, I, I would change, if I was just starting over, I would change the accent in the front of the house from bricks to stone, because I think that would look nicer. I would change the fact, I would, I would keep the fact that we have a laundry room in the house, but I think I would make the door to get into the laundry room bigger, because the way it is now, if I want to get like a machine out, like a dryer, I actually have to deconstruct part of the door frame to do it. So I need a bigger door. I would change that. That's a pain. Change some things. I'd replace some things. I'd keep some things. Now, some of you are thinking about all the remodeling projects that you need to tackle. Hang in there with me for a minute. There's another important question that, that comes to play, though, when we start to think about this, and we should think about this. We have to think about this kind of stuff. You've got to think about it with family. You've got to think about it with work. You've got to think about the plans that you make. You've got to think about this with church. You know, are we in the same kind of circumstance that we were in two years ago? 
in almost every way, no. So we got to think, what would we keep? What would we change? What would we throw out? We had to start things over. Priority becomes important. You know, so going back to my house, a new shower head really doesn't matter if you don't have basic plumbing, right? Your 60-inch TV and entertainment center doesn't really matter if you don't have electricity. There, there, there's this matter of, of priorities. There are basic, fundamental essentials that you need. And so I would ask you this. As we talk about rebuild, if you had to start over with church, what would you keep? What would you stop? What would you change? What would you prioritize? I would just simply make this argument to you today. Based on the fact that God's word refers to the gathering of his people as a house of prayer, and based on the fact that Jesus personally affirmed this prayer priority, and based on the fact that Jesus personally lived out this prayer priority, and based on the fact that Jesus left behind the mission, the global mission of his work in the hands of a prayer meeting, we can see the priority of rebuilding the upper room. In other words, it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient for you as a Christ follower to say, I don't pay attention to that area of my life. It's not sufficient for us as leaders in this church to say, well, we just, whatever, if it happens, it happens. It's not sufficient. We can hear the voice of Jesus calling us to greater hunger. If you're a ministry leader and we commissioned you today, you've gotta lead out of the power that comes from the upper room. And it will not be sufficient for kingdom advancement for us to do otherwise. We must prioritize. Part of the reason we don't prioritize is that we don't always understand it. So let me give you just a couple pieces in this second point. Understanding the upper room. Our friends at Barner Research tell us that prayer uh, is the most commonly uh, practiced faith discipline among American adults. 79% of Americans have prayed at least once in the past few months. It's not too bad. But it's also one of the most complex and multifaceted things, which is why many of us would say, I know that I should pray. I know that I should have this kind of connection with the Lord. I'm just not always sure where to start. It is complex. There are a lot of questions, and it doesn't matter if you're a pastor or whatever. You, you have probably a lot of questions around prayer, how we do it, why we do it, when we do it, etc. According to this Barna research, women are more likely to pray than men. Older folks, more likely to pray than younger folks. Higher educated people are less likely to pray in a crisis than those with less education. I'm not really commenting on those things. I just find them interesting and maybe instructional for us. People are much more likely to pray alone than with others. This is an interesting snapshot of our reality. So actually, if you look at this little infographic that they have, this is from the Barna article that I was referencing now. Um, People who pray silently by themselves, it's like 82% of the respondents were like, that's, that's me. That's kind of how I do it. It's probably many of us. And there's nothing wrong with this, incidentally. Uh, there's nothing wrong with praying by yourself. As you go down these things, it gets really different, though. People who pray out loud or audibly by themselves, that drops to like 13%. So we go from silent to audible, all of a sudden we go to 13%. Audibly with another person or group or collectively with a church, those numbers drop down to 2%. Okay, so it seems that in our current state, 
our current mood and our current kind of space, if there was a need, it would be probably churches saying, we're not really sure how to be together in prayer. Sometimes we don't prioritize it because we don't understand it. Now, we've all experienced prayer gatherings that do more to turn us off or suck the life out of us than to connect ourselves to the heart of the Father. Raise your hand if you've been in a dry prayer meeting at least once in your life. Okay? If the person leading that prayer meeting is here, make sure they saw you. It's pretty lousy. Not good. Caveat. Important caveat. There are many times that we discipline ourselves. Prayer would be one of those areas. Not because it feels good, not because it gives us a rush, not because we're pursuing some kind of experience, but because it is the right thing to do. We're being faithful in prayer. Many times in my prayer life, I'm being faithful in prayer. So what I don't want to do is give you the, 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 the false illusion that when, when I pray, it's just, woo, you know, me and Jesus, face to face, you know, it's just, it's easy. You know, sometimes it's discipline, and that's okay. So take that as an important caveat. But let's be encouraged to know that the upper room Christian does not have to feel that they are condemned to a life sentence of boredom. In fact, the opposite is often the case. When, when you are listening for the voice of the Lord and you're receiving from him, all of a sudden now this is the place where God begins to change the atmosphere around you and around that area. So now that we're commissioning people, we're sending out you know, a few weeks ago, we were baptizing people. We, were, we sent out a young man who was following the Lord in ministry. These are the things that happen when we pray. So it does not have to be a life sentence of boredom. How do we understand the upper room? I want to give you a, a definition from a, a personal friend and a mentor whose name is Fred Hartley. Uh, Fred Hartley runs a ministry called the College of Prayer. The first time that I encountered him, he was speaking at a conference, and I was very intrigued by him because he was talking about these prayer ministry things that they were doing. And at that time, I think there were nine or 10,000 like, pockets around the world that were, were popping up as people were, were praying. And, and, and their mission was to see the church of God revived through prayer so that we would be then on mission with God with, with more fervor because the world is never going to be changed by an unrevived church right? So the mission of prayer was to revive the church. It was not to get people together in dull prayer meetings, but to say, look, we're seeking the Lord. We're passionate about asking for revival. We are on our face asking the Lord to stir up hunger, that kind of stuff. So I was kind of intrigued. I first, and then, and so I heard him at this conference. I was sort of inspired. It was good and met him a little bit and then kind of got off his radar. And when I when he reemerged on my radar, that ministry that was in nine or 10,000 places had suddenly, you know, over the space of several years, gone global to the point that now I'm actually part of this ministry and I do a monthly call with Fred Hartley and we, we have time together, we pray together. But now that they're saying, you know, we've got a five year mission to be in every country in the world, hundreds of thousands of gatherings of Christians who are pursuing the presence of God. And it is reviving the church, and the fruit is unbelievable. So the last call that we were on basically said, look, that five-year plan to be in every country of the world, we're probably going to be done in less than two because God's on the move. God's stirring in this area of prayer. Anyway, I say all that to say as a long introduction. Fred Hartley's like, he's like my prayer guy. you got to have a prayer guy, a guy that you can learn from, a guy where you see God at work. 
And he defines the upper room this way. He says, the upper room today is a gathering of praying Christians who encounter the manifest presence of Christ and his spirit. That's it. Back in the Bible times, the upper room was literally that upper room in the house that had, you know, kind of open air, no roof or whatever, and the people would gather. That's not, we're not going to the highest place in the building. We are going to the highest priority of the ministry, which is saying we're seeking the presence of the Lord. So the upper room. There, now, now, I want to give you just a little instruction. Fred, you know, teaches on this stuff all the time and all around the world. But let me give you a little bit of instruction of the scripture that we referenced already today from Acts 1. What do we actually see happening here? And this is where God is going to start to put together and connect the dots for some of you because you realize, wait a minute, I think I'm already kind of this close to experiencing that upper room in my community group, in my family, with my spouse, with my friends, in my workplace, whatever, in my ministry. So Acts chapter 1 and 2, we see a couple of things. What are happening as we understand the upper room? Number one, we see that they gathered. We just read this a few minutes ago. We gathered, they gathered in one accord. This is a whole sermon. I'm not going to do it as a whole sermon, but let me just tell you, this is a whole sermon right here. When you are gathered in the unifying flow of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to argue about preference. You're not going to argue, I like this, he likes that, she said this, he said that. Like All of that stuff kind of gets to the wayside, and we start to get in one flow. We start to get in one, and that's actually the, the, the word that it says one accord is homothumadon. It's one flow. We're going in the same direction, led by the Holy Spirit, seeking the Lord together. That happens in prayer, and it happened with the disciples. So Jesus says, don't go into ministry mode. Don't go into planning mode. Go into prayer mode. Learn to be together in prayer. So they start doing that. The second thing is that they, they prayed continuously. And the reason this is significant is that these are the same people that Jesus said of them, couldn't you pray with me for one hour? You remember this? I mean, just before this, couldn't you pray with me for one hour? And now they're praying like 10 days at a time, led by the power of the Holy Spirit and led into that seeking kind of upper room mode. So they're, they're gathering in one accord, they're praying continuously, and then they begin to receive from the Lord. This is the answer to every dry prayer meeting you have ever suffered through, is it was dry and boring because you didn't even realize you were there to receive from the Lord. You thought you had to get through the list of everybody's broken toe and, you know, upset and so-and-so's in the hospital and da 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 and I discipline, I prayed through them. And it's good to have the discipline to do that, but we are gathered together to receive from the Lord. And this is where things start to stir. This is where, I'll tell you, this, this morning where I'm standing over here in worship, and I look over, and these guys are going after it in worship, and, and, I, and I begin to just receive from the Lord his presence, his affirmation his confidence, his hand on my life, his fullness. You see what I mean? Like we receive, and the thing about, here's the thing. I, I, I'm, I'm junior varsity. I mean, I'm convinced of this. I'm junior varsity. I'm talking to people that there are people in this room that are much, much deeper in their prayer life. I get that. Uh, you, I, I need to keep learning from you, and I, I want to keep growing. But the fact of the matter is, this has been one of the biggest game changers for me, is realizing in my prayer life 
I have to receive. Because God has wisdom that I don't have. God has strength and energy that I don't have. God has strategy that I don't have. And so what happens when leaders don't just get together and say, you know, we have a perfunctory prayer before we do all the things that we think we want to do. But instead we say, Lord, we want to receive from you. That's been one of the real beautiful things in this pandemic season. We've been praying a lot more with our elder board. We used to meet together once a month, and we would start the service with a little prayer, and that was always good. Now we pray together every week. We're gathering together, and oftentimes we're just simply starting saying, Lord, we just want to welcome your presence because we want to receive from you. We have nothing apart from him. And sometimes we actually start to believe that. And some of you might actually start to believe that. So we receive. That's a huge, huge part of this. They received the impartation of the Holy Spirit. And then they, they also did one other thing. I want to just touch on this briefly because we're going to talk about it more next week. They, they ministered in that season while they were receiving the Holy Spirit. But then it says that they ministered, and yet they were not ministering for the Lord. They were ministering to the presence of the Lord. And I guarantee you there's a whole lot of us who would say, like, I have no idea what that means. First time I heard that, I was like, that, does, that doesn't make any sense. Because everything on my kind of evangelical grid that I grew up with in my boring prayer meetings and everything else was to say, well, sure, you, we pray and then we do things for other people. We serve other people as we minister for the Lord. But what they were actually doing was that they were ministering to the presence of the Lord. And if you go and look in your Bibles, you actually find that concept, and sometimes even those exact words, stated all over the place. I referenced Isaiah 56 at the top end of this message. The verse that we looked at was verse 7. Let me read to you what verse 56 actually says. It says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him... To love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. You see, the Holy Spirit comes to the disciples who are in prayer. They're rebuilding the upper room. They're, they're living this out for us. The Holy Spirit becomes, they, they begin to receive. And then they begin to minister to the presence of the Lord. The reason this is so vitally important, and again, the reason that we've got to grow in this area and understand what we're being called to, is this is the heart of worship, that we are simply saying back to the Lord, this is who you are, who you have revealed yourself to be, and there's something very powerful that begins to happen. Have you ever, have you ever experienced this? I hope that you have. Maybe you haven't. Have you ever experienced that thing where you, you've come into a place of prayer and something changes? Maybe you came in and you were stuffy and frustrated and angry. And something starts to shift in your own heart. Something starts to shift in your own prioritization. Something starts to shift. Suddenly there's some hope again. You know, you know what I'm talking about? In the present, have you ever had this happen where all of a sudden like spontaneous worship breaks out? Religious people hate this, by the way. Because <laughs> you're off the grid, you're off the script, you're off the cue sheet or whatever. But all of a sudden, you, you, you find yourself drawn to a place of worship. What are you doing? You're ministering to the presence of the Lord. You're not performing. You're, you're engaging with him. 
Friends, this is the highest calling on your life as a Christ follower. The highest privilege in your life as a Christ follower is not that you are great at making coffee for people at the church. It's not that you have a warm smile and can greet people as they come in. It's not that you're a great singer. It's not that you're a great musician. It's not that you're a great student or expounder of the Word of God. The greatest privilege in your life is ministering to His presence. And I'm junior varsity. I'm trying to learn how to get there. Little bits and pieces, little baby steps. That is your highest calling. And that's why we got to build the upper room. That's why we got to understand what we're being called to do. And here's the last thing just to encourage you in this, and we'll get to our last point. We're going to do it sort of quickly. The last thing that's amazing is this. When that happens, people begin to receive from the Lord. The presence, manifest presence of the Lord is there. You know, Christian people coming together, believing Christ, receiving from him, ministering to his presence. And the reason this is so critical and the reason that we need to pay attention is what happens is the atmosphere begins to change around that prayer gathering. And, I mean, we, we literally see this. If you read through in Acts chapter 2, what happens, they go out from there into ministry mode. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. And we would say, well, maybe they just got lucky. There just happened to be 3,000 people who were like, you know, I'm really thinking about my eternity. I'm really thinking about this guy named Jesus. Like, oh, he's a guy. No, it was that the atmosphere around that city began to change. The atmosphere around that, pe- that group of people began to change. Some of you are wrestling right now because you say, I don't know if the atmosphere around my family dynamics is ever going to change. I don't know if the atmosphere around my church or ministry experience is ever going to change. And yet here's what happens when the manifest presence of the Lord is there. The atmosphere around that place is changed. And that is where the harvest comes from. Not because we figured out how to work harder. The presence of God changes the atmosphere in his people. That is why, and I pray that it's happened or will happen. That is why when you come to the place of encountering the presence of the Lord, your, your habits begin to change. Your appetites begin to change. There are people, you could tell the story. I've heard many of your stories. I didn't want to keep doing the things that I used to do in my old nature when I came into a real encounter with the manifest presence of God. People begin to change. The presence of God changes the atmosphere in a community. What once was hostile now becomes receptive. This is that time where we we start to see spiritual breakthrough. We start to see spiritual hunger. We start to see spiritual renewal. And this is the way that Jesus built the first church. So we must rebuild the upper room. I'm just going to give you a couple things quickly on a few practical pieces. The last thing I want to do is leave, have you leaving saying like, that sounds good, I just still have no idea where to start. So let me give you a couple of things. Number one, rebuilding your upper room. Start with humility. We see all through scripture, multiple places in scripture, God is drawn to humble hearts. He resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Um, in that spirit of humility, we actually find 
an okay space to deal with our brokenness. That's why humble, that's why the humble, I mean, that's why Jesus talked about this. He said, you know, there's two guys that go to the temple, and this guy says, hey, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. You remember that story? You know, and the other person says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and I don't have, I'm not worthy. And he says, this guy got it, and this guy missed it because this guy was humble. He started with his brokenness. We take off the mask. We don't have to look the part. That, we experienced a taste of that last week. When many of us were saying, we could have left here saying, yes, some relationships in my life have probably been strained, and that probably is a need. I hope it gets better when we leave. And instead, Nate, who was preaching, he said, no, I want you to name that. I want you to speak it. And there was something that started to shift as we embraced some things that were actually broken, actually feeling that need. So start with humility. That's huge. Um, yeah, I'll, um, maybe just one other thing on that. It's, it's always easier to be critical. You know, we say, well, this, this church doesn't pray like it used to. Uh, you know, I don't even know where to start. I can't, uh, da, 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 da. you know, you'd be critical. That's not, that's not brokenness. That's just critical. So we reject a, a critical spirit. And we say, Lord, in humility, we need you. We can't do this without you. Um, ask God to cultivate hunger. Ask God to cultivate hunger. Some of you have no hunger. I get it. I've been in play. I got no hunger. Ask God to, to address that issue. Some of you are praying for kids, for grandkids, for spouses, for friends. Ask God to cultivate hunger. That's a, that is a go-to prayer at any point. God, I pray over my kid's life that you would cultivate a hunger in them. Lord, I pray over my children, my grandkids someday. I pray over our church family that you would cultivate a hunger in us. It's a very practical place where you can ask God to cultivate hunger. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus, I'm going to take you up on that promise. Help me to be hungry. Number three, if you're going to rebuild your, don't, don't overvalue the past. Learn from it. Be inspired by things that God has done in the past, sure, but don't overvalue it. That's one of the ways to miss what God wants to do in the present, is to spend all of our time wishing that things used to be, or the way that they used to be five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or whatever. Don't overvalue it. Learn from it, grow from it. And, and here's why. Our memories do weird things, don't they? I, we have, it's just amazing. You can hear people tell stories about things that used to happen, and people will say things like, you know what, my dad was always there for me. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. But he was there for you at the right time. And what got imprinted on your heart and your life was dad was always there when I needed him. That's a good example. Others of you say dad was never there for me. Probably not true either. But he probably wasn't there when you needed him. And so the memory that you had is dad was never there. This church used to pray for, I mean, <laughs> I think about, I love this. Remember when the Israelites are coming out of Egypt? And they're complaining because they don't have food and stuff like that. Do you remember the memories that they came up with? We used to sit around pots of meat. I, there were ne what pots of meat? We had, we had, oh, things were so great. The 400 years that you were crying out to God in slavery, deliver us, help us, da, da, da. And now, oh, but that was actually pretty good. I remember that now. Yeah, I am clear. 
And we do that all the time in church stuff. I could tell you stories about ministry experiences, and I've been on both sides of it. You know, we just have these memories that are faulty. So just don't overvalue the past. The other thing about this is that Jesus can be frustratingly non-formulaic. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, a friend of mine, colleague, prayer warrior, older gentleman, he, I remember him telling me one time, he said, you know, Aaron, I got started thinking about the way that Jesus worked in healing, and so I studied every single one of the healing encounters with Jesus in the Bible, and do you know what I found to be his pattern? I said, what? He said, there's not. He, like, almost never does the same thing. Except take broken people and make them well. He does that, but he does it in all kinds of different ways. And I think the reason he's doing it is he doesn't really want us to copy a pattern. He doesn't want us to overvalue a past, figure out the the formula. So Jesus can be frustratingly non-formulaic. So just don't overvalue the past. That's important. Um, Number four, last one I'll, I'll give you is this. Uh, commit to something. If you say, you know what, I'd like to grow in this area of prayer. I'm going to rebuild the upper room. I want to see what God has for me in this. Just commit to something. Sometimes the excessive need and the excessive opportunities cause a certain paralysis wherein we just go, I don't really know where to start. So another month goes by and we just have done nothing in the area of rebuilding the upper room. Just commit to something. We talked about 24-7 prayer. Pick one hour that you would say, this is going to be my time, that I'm going to rebuild the upper room. I'm going to receive from the Lord. I'm going to minister to the presence of the Lord. I'm going to see what he has for me, see what he wants to do. And if on some days it feels like rote discipline and I'm going through it, to go, then, then embrace it. And if sometimes there's spiritual breakthrough, then embrace that and thank the Lord for it. But do something. Um, we're going to do in this coming weeks, we haven't, we haven't got our start date yet, uh, we're going to do a Sunday night prayer encounter, which is going to be like a six-week We're going to teach you how to go after this. Do it. You know, just say, look, I'm going to commit to six weeks of of, of one hour. We'll give you more details as they get ready, but prayer encounter. Just say, look, if I need to learn to grow in this, I'll do it. But pick one thing. Pick one place. Commit to something. I'm going to conclude with this. Worship team can come up, and then uh, we're just going to give you a very simple response today um, if you are stirred. The stakes are very high, very high. In a church that does not have the upper room intact and the Christ follower that ignores the upper room does so at their own peril, we will miss out on the things that God has for us, and that's not good enough. The stakes are high. The needs are global. And this is a time, this is a season where the Lord is saying, I'm calling on people to be prayer warriors. When we have brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, they're trying to figure out how they're going to stay alive. And God's saying, I want my church to be motivated to pray. We cannot be distracted by lesser things. We can't be lazy just because we have so much and we're comfortable. And I'm not saying that to heap guilt. I'm not saying that to heap guilt. I'm just saying, as a reality, the stakes are high, and we must open our eyes and understand that. And the opportunities are so high, so good, so great. The Lord has things for us as a church, as an upper room 
building church, people who are willing to say, look, I may be JV, but I'm going after it. I'm not too young. I'm not too young to build the upper room of prayer in my life. Some of you need to hear that. You've been allowing your youth to become your excuse to say, I'll figure that out when I get bigger, (laughs) older. You are not too old to rebuild the upper room of prayer in your life. Some of you need to hear that. You are in a place to be a prayer warrior, to take all the authority that the Lord wants to give you in prayer and to be a globally minded prayer warrior. Let's learn to do that together. The needs are significant. The calling is significant. The opportunities are significant. And finally, I'll just simply say it this way. There is a passionate pursuit When we get to this upper room place, when we start to understand this, there is a passionate pursuit of God's dream for you, for your family, for your region, for your church. This, I mean, this has been on my heart very heavy in in these recent weeks, the Lord, Lord simply saying, there was a dream on my heart when this church was planted. Do you want to know what it is? Do you want to know my passion? Do you want to know my heart? Do you want to know the things that I desire to do through ordinary people like you? And this is not delusions of grandeur. This is simply ordinary people saying, yes, we want to rebuild the upper room. We want to receive. We want to minister to the presence. We want to follow what he has for us. There was a dream on his heart when this church was planted. Let's figure out what it is. So here's my, here's my invite. It's actually very simple today. Thank you for indulging my passion and my time. And I, I think one of the things that, that happens is that I think that this, this particular area is just so real to the heart of the Lord um, that I endure incredible, like, battles to get to this place, but I, I see, I know why that is. I know why that is. It's because this is, this is a big part of the heart of Christ. This is what he wants for us. So the forces of hell come against it, and we have to stand against those things. So your commitment today uh, could be simply this. If you have a sense in your heart to say, you know what, I want to go deeper in the, in the building of the upper room. God has something for me. I'm not too young. I'm not too old. I want to lean into this. I'm going to commit to something. Maybe that's the the commitment right there. I'm going to simply be humble. I'm going to stop looking at the past. Any number of these things, the Lord is saying, I'm stirring here today. As we sing, I would ask you just to stand. Um, Don't start standing. Wait till the Lord says, yeah, stand up. And make that standing a sign of your commitment to say, I'm building the upper room in my life, in my ministry, in my family my home. I'm doing that today. Um, Let that be your commitment. So Jesus, we are humbled at your feet and waiting in your presence, and we come with open hands. And we ask that you would cause us to receive today everything that you desire to pour out. And you make that decision. We don't. But we don't want to miss a thing. So, Lord, I pray that you would rebuild the upper room in each life and in this church in a special way. We pray. Amen. If that's your heart in prayer, when the time's right, you stand up and lead lead us, team, if you would, as uh, we close.